Welcome to the Choosing Hope podcast. My name is Munira Pramji and I am so glad you're here. This is the podcast where you will meet some extraordinary people who have faced adversity and have overcome it. And they're here to tell you how they did this and what they've learned. We will explore themes like hope, community, and self-care. Topics that I cover in my book, Choosing Hope, One Woman, Three Cancers. If you have any comments or suggestions or just want to say hello, please connect with me through Facebook, LinkedIn, or Instagram. Well, I'm thrilled to introduce you to our guest for today's show. Her name is Andrea Wilson-Woods, all the way from Birmingham, Alabama. Andrea Wilson-Woods is a writer. Her book called Better Off, Better Off Bald, A Life in 147 Days, is a medical memoir. It is a brilliant, touching story, beautifully written. It is the story of Andrea, our guest today, raising her younger sister, Adrian, from the age of eight until her sister dies from liver cancer at age 15. This book has won many awards, including the Independent Press Award and the Living Now Book Award and is a number one bestseller on Amazon in multiple categories. Andrea is a patient advocate and founded the Adrian Wilson Liver Cancer Association, which we will be talking a little bit more about in today's program. In addition, she is also CEO and co-founder of Cancer University a for-profit social benefit digital health company. And we will also be talking about Cancer University. Uh, but prior to doing all of this and, and getting into this incredible line of work, Andrea worked in the education field as a teacher for public and private schools and universities. Welcome to the show, Andrea. Oh, thank you for having me. I had a chance to read uh, the book, Better Off Bold. And I got to tell you, I cried through the entire entire book. I cried and I laughed and I, <laughs> um, I was right there with you in, in, in your journey with your sister. So your book is called Better Off Bold, A Life in 147 Days. So tell me uh, and tell our listeners about the book and how you came upon this really unique title. <laughs> sure, of course. Um, so as you said, the book is a medical memoir, and it's about the seven-year period in my life, in my 20s, when I was raising my sister, Adrian. Um, and I decided to structure the book like a journal. And and I did that because um, 147 days is a very short amount of time, and that was the span of my sister's cancer journey. And so days are chapters in the book. So day one is essentially chapter one. Um, the other reason I wrote it like a journal is because my sister was a writer too, and she had started an online journal prior to being diagnosed with cancer and kept writing in that journal during her cancer journey. And so by day three, um, you actually see her words opening up each chapter. And 
mind you, I did not read her journal until a year and a half after she died. So I did not know what her thoughts were. And so you get to see what how she felt as a patient and how I felt as a caregiver. And you often see where we were in very different spaces at different times. Um, yeah. And oh, the title. Yes. So uh, the working title, truly working title was always Adrian Sissy because she always called me Sissy. Um, I knew that was not the title. And one of the things I've learned is, you know, a title should be about the heart to really grab the reader. And the working title or the subtitle is about the head. It tells people what the book is about. So I knew the subtitle was a life in 147 days. But the title, I remember I was leaving a class, um, a writing class with a mentor. I was in the parking garage and I just kept thinking about Adrian and how beautiful she was bald. And she did not think she was pretty until she was bald. It was the first time that she really looked in the mirror and was like, whoa, like I, I look amazing. And her favorite photo of herself was during that cancer journey. And I just something in my head just went, gosh, you know, in, in that one sense, she was better off bald, not better off sick, but better off bald. And I was like, oh, that's it. Like that, that's the title. That's it. And it fits so perfectly. I mean, when you read the book, it just it just comes alive. The, the title does. Um, it is an emotional read, and I did um, certainly cry my share of tears as I was reading the book. And I also found that there were moments of levity and moments of interactivity between the two of you that was so endearing and. Uh, it was just an easy read, difficult read, and yet easy to to get through. And in the journal format, certainly worked really well because you do get to hear the voices of both you as uh, her sister and her as as a patient. So congratulations on the book. Oh, thank you so much. So you've said um, that Adrian um, in her teens really did struggle with depression and suicide ideation and and that she sought help from counseling, which was really helpful for her. And this was even before she was diagnosed with uh, stage four liver cancer. Uh, I know of so many individuals today, um, Andrea, who are really struggling with mental illness. What was it like for um, Adrian going through mental health challenges and for you as her caregiver? It was really difficult for her and she hid it for a long time. And um, I don't think I would have known. I knew something was off, but I don't think I would have known if um, she had not been such a slob. <laughs> mm-hmm. And um, she she was such a slob. Oh, gosh. I miss, <laughs> I miss it now, but it drove me crazy. And, and I basically gave her like an ultimatum. You have this many days to clean your room or I'm going in and I'm just taking everything out. And that's what happened. And I went in and um, was picking up her room and, and everything. And I found a suicide note. And it was really serious. Like it, 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 it just, I could feel it and it was very planned and she had a date. Um, she, it, it was, it was a will. It was like, this person will get these possessions, this person. Um, and it just terrified me in that moment. Um, and she was 12 years old. Um, and I knew that she had been having a really tough time in middle school. She was trying to fit in with people Um, who had known each other since kindergarten, we had moved to a new school district. um, And, and she was really struggling trying to be someone she wasn't. 
Um, and I know for me personally, seventh grade was the worst year <laughs> of school for me. Mm -hmm. It's just, it's not a good time, especially for girls. And um, so in that moment, like I knew we had to get her help. Um, and she was very resistant at first. Um, but, but from the time she was 12, it was uh, August of 1998. I'll never forget. Um, really up and up until, you know, during her diagnosis, um, she saw a counselor every week on Wednesdays at seven o'clock. And I am so grateful that we got the person we did. Um, having gone through therapy myself, I've had a lot of hit and misses with therapists, but we just got the most perfect person in the world. Um, and she's in the book as well. I call her Diane in the book. And she just, she specialized in working with teens and she just, she was just amazing. I mean, I really credit her with saving Adrian's life. And about a year and a half um, of therapy, a year and a half in, uh, Adrian was doing much better. Um, she was no longer suicidal. I wouldn't say she was happy all the time, but she wasn't suicidal anymore. And I asked her, I said, do you want to keep going to see um, Diane every week? She's like, yeah, yeah, I do. She goes, I like having someone else to talk to um, who's not you. Um, and, and I thought that was healthy too, you know, and she even talked to her friends about it. She wasn't shy about it. She's like, mm -hmm. I go see my psycho doctor every Wednesday. <laughs> wow. And, and so it just, it, you know, she was a very special person in our lives. Um, and she was there when Adrian died. Mm. You know, I, uh, I really commend you for shedding a light and talking about this because there is such a stigma with uh, mental health, such a stigma. And um, your story just illustrates that with, with help and with support and with the right fit. Yeah, very important. That, you know, you can get better and you can live a, worth, a life worth living. Yeah. Um, so painful as it is, I appreciate your um, sharing that story. And then Adrian finds herself in the fight for her life. Now, how old was she when she was diagnosed? Uh, it was one month after her 15th birthday when an ER doctor told us that news. Mm -hmm. Wow. And it's when she's diagnosed and she is in the fight of her life that she decides that she wants to live. Yeah. Yeah, she really did. And where do you think she found um, the resilience and strength to want to live through this really hard time. Like where, where do you think she found the, the strength to embrace the fear and choose to, to live her life so fully for as long as she had life? <laughs> oh, um, you know, I, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I like to think there is part of me in her, but, but there was also just part that something really, really special. Um, I mean, her tombstone reads, young spirit, old soul. And she really was an old soul. And when she got that diagnosis, it was like she just put her foot on the gas and was like, okay, I'm going all out. Um, and it was also as if she made a bucket list and I knew it, but I couldn't acknowledge that to myself. I just had to deny that's what it was, but I knew that's what it was. And she was going to do everything she had ever wanted to do as quickly as possible. And she did almost every single thing she wanted to do. Um, and sometimes they were small things. 
Um, sometimes they were really big things, uh, which we can talk about. Um, but um, she just she just decided to do it. Young spirit also, that really does describe her very well. Um, yeah, before we talk about all the incredible things that she accomplished, her bucket list, um, I just wanted to ask what it was like for you to be your sister's guardian when you were so young yourself. So <laughs> when Adrian was um, diagnosed with stage four liver cancer, um, she was 15 and you were only 22. Like you were so young yourself. I no, by that time I was twenty-eight. Oh, you were uh, okay. Yeah, so I got custody of her when I was twenty-two. That's okay. when I got custody. Um, I was twenty-two, living in Los Angeles. I had finished uh, college, finished USC, and she was eight years old. And so there's a fourteen-year age gap, and I raised her all through my twenties, and then she was diagnosed. Um, a month after her 15th birthday, like I mentioned, I was 28 at that time. And then she actually passed away after just after my 29th birthday. So you were only 22 when you started to look after your little sister? Yes. Yeah. And how did that happen? Um, Adrian came out to visit me for what was supposed to be a two-week vacation in December of 1994. And um, at that point, our, our mother, we have the same mother, different fathers. Her father died before she was born. Um, our mother wasn't doing well, and I knew that. Um, when, I, when I was in high school, I didn't really know our mother was an addict, um, and I finally realized that in college. And, um, but my mother had always been able to maintain a job. She was a nurse, so she was always able to find a job. She was very high-functioning. Um, and but that year, earlier, earlier that year, she had been caught uh, shooting up morphine at work, lost her nursing license, and, and just her life really unraveled from that point forward. She was moving around the country with my sister. And so I said, you know, let her come out here for Christmas and I'll give her a great Christmas. And and that's what I was doing. And then my mother called the day after Christmas and said, I don't want to be a mother anymore. And I'm like, what? <laughs> and she said, I don't want to be a mother anymore. I'm tired. And um, I just said, okay, but if I take her now, I am not going to give her back. I will not. I will fight you. And my mother was kind of like, okay, yeah, whatever. And um, and I didn't put it together at the, at the time, but that was also three days before my mother's 50th birthday. So mm. there might have been a little bit of a midlife thing going on too. Um so anyway, so I took Adrian and my mother did eventually decide to fight and wanted her back at some point. And we, we did end up in court and I got legal custody. So. I don't even know what to say. <laughs> I don't even know what to say. I mean, this is, uh, this was your reality. And, and again, I, I mean, I'm, I'm putting myself to when I was 22 and whether I would even have had the wherewithal to be able to do what you did. Were there times where you resented that decision? Were there times where you asked yourself, you know, put your hands up and said, what the hell am I doing? No, I never resented that decision. Um, I loved her. I'm probably going to cry now. I loved her more than anything, anyone, you know, um, I always did. And, and I always thought one day she would come to live with me. I just thought she would be older. Um, and we, we always had a very special relationship, but um, I, I never resented her 
Um, I resented our mother and a lot of bad stuff happened after I left home to go to college. Adrian was only four when I left to go to college. Mm. Um, and so, and so I had a lot of negative feelings toward our mother, but, um, but, but never her. Um, Mm. yeah, never her. What did you um, do to take care of yourself uh, during this time? When she was diagnosed? When she was yeah. diagnosed, when you became her legal guardian? Um, you know, I, I don't know. I mean, I always put her first. Um, that You know, there was a time when she was battling cancer where I desperately needed support that I wasn't able to find as a, as a parent, um, as a caregiver, there was this, uh, teen support group for teens who had cancer at at the hospital and I dragged her to it and it did not go well. It blew up. It was horrible. (laughs) It's in the book. And that's when I realized, oh my gosh, like I'm the one who needs support. Like, like that's, I was, I was imposing what I needed on her because I so desperately needed support. Um, and, uh, and so that's something that, that I, I will talk about a lot now is, is there's a lot of stuff available for patients if they know where to find it usually, but there's very little often for caregivers or parents. Um, and, and so I really struggled to find support. Um, but in, in a total twist of irony, I've always had problems sleeping my whole life, ever since I was a little child. And the best sleep I've ever gotten in my entire life was during that time when Adrian had cancer. And it was as if my body knew you have to shut off. You cannot dream. This is the only time you can rest. And I could fall asleep like right at 1230 in the morning after I put her to bed, final meds, and I could wake up without an alarm at seven, get everything prepared for her because she had 8am meds. I mean, it was, it was crazy how hard I slept during that time. Now there were a lot of sleepless nights and ER visits and things like that. But I'm saying those nights when I was able to sleep, uh, I, I just slept like a rock. It was crazy. So. Yeah. It's funny uh, how the universe sometimes just knows what it is that you need and makes that happen for you. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, I don't know what you call that. You call that, you know, the universe, you call it miracles. But <laughs> they, they're, they're, they're all around. Um, if we just, you know, uh, if we just have the courage to open our eyes and, and, and look for them. Yeah. Yeah. Um, what else did you do in terms of your own self-care? So the sleep was clearly something that was necessary for you required. Yeah. Um, I, you know, I don't think I really did very much. I mean, I did go to a concert. Adrian made me go, <laughs> um, but I didn't have a lot of fun. You know, I, I was worried about her the whole time. Um, my boyfriend and I, he was a huge part of her life. He was the only father figure she ever had. We did go out and celebrate our five-year anniversary. We had someone come over and watch her, take care of her while we were out. And we didn't have a lot of fun. You know, all we did was worry about her and think about her. And um, and so I just, I, I, I didn't really do a lot of self-care because she was always my, my number one priority. And then it, that just got escalated when she was sick. Um, and, and so I'm not really sure that I am an authority on that at all. <laughs> I mean, other than taking a shower every day, I'm not really sure that I had a lot of self-care. 
fair enough, fair enough. What's your number one priority? Um, what was your sister like? Oh, gosh. Um, oh, she was uh, she was very funny, uh, very dry wit. Um, and uh, I think that's why she was always really comfortable with adults, because uh, a lot of kids her own age didn't get her sense of humor. Um, she was uh, stubborn, um, talkative. Uh, one of our friends always said talking to her was like drinking from a fire hose. Like she, it was just nonstop. <laughs> um, and uh, highly, highly intelligent. Um, and and not and not just book smart, but but really street smart. Um, very determined. Um, independent. Um, you know, I, I just, uh, it's hard for me sometimes because I really wish I could have found out what she was going to do with her life. And I, I don't know what that was going to be. And she had so many different things she wanted to do. And she had so many different talents or so many different directions she could have gone in. Um, you know, it was, uh, it's, it's hard sometimes to think about where she would be today. Mm. Um, and, um, and once she got through a lot of that depression and really started to embrace who she was as a person and stopped trying to be someone else, which is so hard for most of us, um, she uh, really came into her own and she had all different kinds of friends. You know, she was that, that person that attracted people from all these different kinds of groups versus trying to fit into one group by herself. Um, and, that, and that really uh, came to light during her illness, you know, um, and yeah, she was, she was just, she was a great kid. She was a great kid. If you could say something to her today in this moment, what would you say to her? Oh goodness. going to get me tearing up here. Um, I just miss her. Mm. I miss her every day. I almost feel like her spirit is right here with us, you know, <laughs> just probably saying, you go, sis, you go. <laughs> I, I like to think so. I do. So I like to think so. I, I left Los Angeles six years ago, and that was a really hard decision for me. One of the best decisions I ever made for myself, but it was really hard because I felt like I was leaving her behind. Mm. Uh, she's still buried in Los Angeles, and I made a commitment to go back every year um, for a visit on Halloween, which is her, was her favorite holiday and COVID be damned. I went this year. <laughs> um, and I only go for usually five days or so, but, um, but that was hard, you know? And then I realized, you know, she's with me all the time. Mm -hmm. you know, her, her body is buried in Los Angeles, but she is with me mm -hmm. all the time. Mm -hmm. I mean, the relationship that the two of you had was really quite an extraordinary one. Quite an extraordinary one. Um, let's talk a, a little bit about some of the things that she accomplished during those 147 <laughs> days. <laughs> oh, gosh. Well, I think the big, big one was she met her favorite musician, Dave Navarro of Jane's Addiction. If you don't know who that is, Google early 90s. <laughs> uh, she met him twice. Um first on the tonight show so she and her boyfriend found out that he was going to be performing on the tonight show um and we lived in burbank where the tonight show was filmed at the time and this was when jay leno was still hosting it and somehow they got us eight tickets we only needed three or four but we ended up with eight <laughs> tickets 
Um, and uh, they were so nice. They were so nice to her, to us. And Jay Leno made that happen. He made their introdu introduction happen. And it was really funny because she said that Dave Navarro knew who she was because this was, you know, this was 2001. And this is when there were a lot of like early, I think they were Yahoo forums or chat rooms. And, and he inter interacted with his fans much the way people do today on social media. Um, and she had told him that she had gotten sick and he knew who she was. Well, she was right. I didn't believe her, but she was right. He did know who she was. And, and, um, and he was so nice to her. So sweet, just a really genuinely nice man. And, and then she made that happen again. It was her idea to contact Make-A-Wish Foundation. And she decided that she wanted a private concert with him. Um, that was part of her Make-A-Wish. And that was part two. Part one was going to this restaurant and stuff. And, um, and she got to see him again. That was part two of her Make-A-Wish. Um, she got her private concert. Uh, you know, it was it was incredible. And, and not shy about asking what she wanted. Huh? No, she wasn't. And it was so incredible to this day is I still hear stories about her friends and most recently about her therapist. The one we talked about earlier, seeing Dave Navarro years later and going up to him and saying, thank you so much for what you did for Adrian. And he still remembers her. I mean, I love the story. It's such a nice feel good Hallmark kind of story. It is right. <laughs> it is. And, and, and Jay Leno, same way. Like I, I can't say anything negative about him. Um, he called my house after she died and it was so strange because I wasn't picking up the phone. I had a friend handling phone calls and notifying people. And I mean, I wasn't picking up the phone at all. The only time I picked up the phone that week was when he called and it wasn't the caller ID for whatever reason. I just thought, you know, I need to pick up the phone right now. I had no idea why. And it was him and saying that he had found out and he was so sorry. And it was like, what? Like, this is crazy. So, crazy, yeah. nice. Yeah. Crazy, nice, crazy, wonderful. Yeah. Were there some other things that you'd like to highlight that she was able to accomplish that she wanted to? Oh, uh, you know, she was getting into dance, which was so fun for me because I was a ballet dancer for 17 years. And so we went to the ballet and, and you know, just got the best seats ever and um, and had and had so much fun with that. Um, uh, we went to medieval times, which she'd always wanted to do, um, which was always really expensive, but we didn't care anymore about the money. And we went and had, you know, she had the best time. Um you know, there, it was just all kinds of stuff that, you know, she, she wanted to do. And so we did. And it, yeah. so her attitude at the hospital was when she had to get chemo uh, uh, inpatient at the hospital and stay. And she was always like, okay, when am I going to be out of here? <laughs> you know, <laughs> I've got things to do. I've got things planned, you know, come on people. I got to get discharged. Got to go. Got to go. <laughs> we squeezed a lot of life in those uh, 147 days. She did. Yeah, she really did. What messages would you like readers to take away from uh, from this book? Oh, you know, I feel like they're a little bit, they might sound trite or um, stereotypical, but um, before Adrian got cancer, I never took time to breathe unless I was like reading a book. Other than that, like I never stopped. 
ever. Adrian used to call me the bee because I was always buzzing around. I mean, I, I couldn't even watch a TV show without doing two of the things at the same time. I, I just, I felt like I was wasting time if I wasn't constantly doing something. Mm. Um, it was really hard for me just to do only one thing at a time. Mm-hmm. And, um, and this is before I had a cell phone. You know, I can't even imagine how bad I would have been back then with a cell phone. And so, um, you know, I don't do that anymore. You know, I don't do that anymore. I, I don't just fill time to fill time or try to do two or three or four things at one time. Um, I, I, I slowed down a lot in a good way. Um, and then also like that book, don't sweat the small stuff, like really do not sweat the small stuff. Um, and this came after she died, but um, you lose people. And you might lose people when you're diagnosed with cancer, or it might be later. Um, I didn't lose people when she was diagnosed, but when she died, I ended up losing every single person who's in that book. I ended up losing. Oh um, my goodness! Yeah, and and that's the next book I want to write about going through this really difficult time in my life and grieving and losing everybody, um, and not understanding. Um, why? Because I only ended one friendship myself purposely because it was in my best interest. But other than that, people just left, like disappeared, walked away. And I didn't understand why. And it was really hard for me. Um, and, and so it's really important to surround yourself with people who are good for you. So important. Wow. I hear you. And uh, I, I, feel, I feel your pain. Thank it's- you. It's uh, not easy. Uh, Some of the messages that I took away from reading the book was about embracing your fears and just Mm -hmm. like going out and and doing it and being it, you know, and about living every moment just Mm -hmm. the way that your sister did. Yes. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's kind of the obvious one. (laughs) I forgot about that one. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, yeah, you have to. You have to just and don't wait to do something. If there's something you really want to do, don't wait. You could get hit by a bus tomorrow. I mean, you know, just don't don't wait. Yeah, life is definitely fragile. And we are all living on borrowed time. We don't know when. And so I, I thought those messages were just so beautiful. And and your relationship with time and not filling every moment of every day, just doing stuff is, is another beautiful message. Thank you. So then um, your sister passes away and you start a nonprofit Mm -hmm. organization in memory of your sister called blue fairy. Mm -hmm. And this organization I understand is specifically for liver cancer patients and their caregivers Right. Tell us a little bit about it. Yeah. So uh, Blue Fairy's mission is to prevent, treat, and cure primary liver cancer, specifically hepatocellular carcinoma. It's the most common type of liver cancer through research, education, advocacy. And um, it was never my life plan to start a nonprofit. I, I don't think anybody, when they're a kid, says, oh, when I grow up, I want to start a charity. I, I certainly did not. Um, but uh, that first year after she died, I just sort of plotted through. And, um, and when it came up on the anniversary of her death, I, I was in a terrible place and I really wanted to channel my grief. And so all I wanted to do was volunteer. That, that was it. And I contacted the largest liver disease organization in the U S um, and 
said, I, I want to volunteer for you, but I noticed you don't have anything on liver cancer, which kind of surprised me. And I said, mm-hmm. I'd like to do something. And they said, no. I said, no, 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 you don't, you don't understand. You don't have to pay me. <laughs> don't pay me. I'll create something for you. This is my background, you know, I'm writing and marketing. No. And I didn't know it at the time. I found out later that that was an edict within the organization. They did not want to touch cancer at the time because it was too hard. It was too difficult. Mm-hmm. And it really became one of those things where I did a lot of research and found that there wasn't a single organization in the U.S. doing anything for primary liver cancer. And based on what I knew about Adrian and what I learned, I knew that that cancer was just going to keep going up, up, up in the U.S. And so I was like, okay, well, no one's doing anything about this. I guess I got to do something about it. Um, and that's really how it started was no one else was doing it. So. How, um, how long have you had this organization? Um, 18 years. Whoa. Yeah. <laughs> So really quite established then. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I the first so ten years or so, um, we were really small. I mean, patients and caregivers found us, and doctors, and um, but we were very under the radar. Um, really, until uh, I hate to say it, but until pharmaceutical companies got into the liver cancer business. Once they got into the liver cancer business and started to say, "Huh, oh, wait a minute, maybe we should develop some drugs and help people live longer." that's when things really changed for us um, mm. because all of a sudden people went, wait, there's only one organization in the U S that does this type of liver cancer. And, and we were it. And, and, um, and that really changed the trajectory of, uh, of the organization in terms of growth. Um, and, and we've just been growing a uh, year, year over year ever since. So. That's a remarkable story. And as if that wasn't enough, you then started Cancer University. Yes. Yeah. I'm the co-founder of Cancer U. <laughs> yeah. What inspired you to do that? You know, that came out of my work with Blue Fairies. So I, um, I have been coaching patients and caregivers pro bono for years and um, over the phone, you know, sometimes over email, but mostly over the phone. And because what I was finding with my own organization with Blue Fairy was that even when patients and caregivers had the best information, like I know that our patient education materials are top notch, they're easy to understand, they're written in layman's terms, multiple languages, that 95% of the time, patients and caregivers still didn't know what to do next. It's kind of like you give someone the what, but then you don't tell them the how. And, mm. and so I really just wanted to solve this problem of, okay, well, you, you still have to teach people how to use the information. You just giving information isn't enough. You, you need to give them more, more steps. And it was a problem I was, I was just trying to solve and I kept ruminating over. And um, I kept thinking about my own experience, how, I was really comfortable around doctors and hospitals because our mother was a nurse. I grew up in that environment. And even with that, I was lost and overwhelmed. And I was asked to make major decisions about Adrian's treatment 48 hours after an ER doctor told us she had liver uh, tumors in her liver and lungs. I mean, like, that day, and then two days later, she has a biopsy, and it's like, okay, we're discussing treatment. It's like, what? I mean, she didn't go back mm-hmm. to school. Mm-hmm. I didn't go back to work. I mean, it was just, you know, and um, it's so overwhelming. And I was like, God, it's almost like you got to go back to school. And that's when the idea came to me. It's like can- Cancer University. So 
Yeah, I, I'm so much in awe of you. Um, <laughs> You're so sweet. So much in awe. I mean, you know, you you curtailed this experience that you had, this really harrowing experience that you had with your sister, with your life, you know, with growing up. And then you you convert that into this incredible purpose where you're able to help so many people um, in the way that you do, uh, you know, empowering them, um, combining your talents of teaching and coaching and writing and advocacy <laughs> to create better outcomes for cancer patients and caregivers. I mean, I, I, I'm, I'm so blown away that Aww. you find a way to... Um, to take your experiences and, and, and do something so magnificent. Thank you. Thank and you. so if individuals um, wanted to learn more about the, uh, the Adrian Wilson Liver Cancer Association or Cancer U, um, how do they go about uh, finding out? Yeah, so uh, to learn more about Blue Fairy, just go to bluefairy.org, B-L-U-E-F-A-E-R-Y. Um, that's, uh, we spell it that way because that's the way Adrian liked it. <laughs> and uh, for Cancer University, um, I actually have a gift for your listeners, which I can tell you now or we can do at the end. You just let me know. Um, go ahead. Do, okay. Uh, so Cancer University is cancer.university. Um, so it's not a .com, it's .university. And if you go to Cancer University, um, you will see green buttons that say enroll now. So if you are a currently diagnosed patient um, or caregiver of a currently diagnosed patient and you click the enroll now button, um, you can have a free lifetime membership to Cancer U. And there's going to be a little spot about the coupon code and just use the coupon code HOPEFUL, all one word, all caps, because I know that that is one of the questions coming up. <laughs> so use the coupon code HOPEFULCANCER.UNIVERSITY. That's incredibly generous. Thank you for that. And yes, speaking of hope, (laughs) what is one thing, um, Andrea, that you're hopeful for? Can I have two? I have two. You can have two. (laughs) You don't follow rules, I can tell. (laughs) We got to talk about that after you stop recording. (laughs) Um, One thing I'm extremely hopeful for is to see a cure for hepatocellular carcinoma in my lifetime. Um, liver cancer is one of the most common cause of cancer deaths worldwide, and yet it's a highly preventable cancer. It's one, one of those cancers, well, okay, we know what the majority of the causes are, um, and they are preventable. So um, I'm incredibly optimistic about that. Um, and then my other hope is that um, is to really, with Cancer U, to create this powerful, sustained movement that changes cancer care. And I used to say in this country, but uh, we've had this very unique opportunity come up. um, And we always thought long-term we would bring Cancer U to other countries if it was appropriate, um, but that might happen a lot sooner than we expected. Um, So we really want to bring Cancer U um, worldwide. And with Cancer U, we educate, empower, and engage patients and caregivers to become advocates for their cancer care, as you said, to improve outcomes and also reduce cost. And so the customers of Cancer U are pharmaceutical companies, uh, healthcare providers, health insurance companies, employer health plans, but the end users are members 
those are the cancer patients and caregivers. Well, with your passion, with your perseverance, I have no doubt that you will make this uh, dream a reality. Thank you. Sooner than you even think. I just (laughs) thank you about that. (laughs) Well, it has been my joy, my pleasure to have had this opportunity to speak with you. I am so inspired and so motivated by your story. Um, For those of you um, who are interested in in reading a book that really talks about the cancer journey from the perspective of a caregiver, as well as the patient, you know, please pick up this book. It's called Better Off Bald, A Life in 147 Days, written in journal format. And uh, it's uh, a number one bestseller on Amazon in multiple categories for good reasons. So (laughs) I encourage everyone listening to pick up this book. And uh, thank you again, Andrea, for your generosity of time, for what it is that you do, for people who are so vulnerable, and for being who you are. You really are an example of someone who has um, done incredible work in a very short span, um, very short span. And I'm very proud to have had you on the show today. Thank you. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. If you have enjoyed today's show, click the subscribe button so you don't miss an episode. Share the podcast with others. And if you want to help this podcast grow, please rate and review it on Apple Podcasts so more listeners tune into it. It really helps. In the meantime, whatever you're doing, wherever you are, choose hope. How will you choose hope today?